0: Good morning, uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 100, that'll be our sermon text for this morning. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on the back table there, you're welcome to grab one, and uh, you are welcome to keep that Bible if you don't own a Bible, uh, write your name in the front. Bring it back week after week as we study God's word together. Before we read Psalm 100, let's pray together. Our Father, we we need Your Spirit in order to understand Your Word. We need Your help. We need You to open our hearts and our minds and give us clarity and help me to speak. Clearly, help us to understand what we read and hear. Father, we pray that you would be at work right now in our hearts, guiding us to you, uh, guiding us to your throne of grace. We pray most of all that we would, we would see Jesus in the scriptures, that we would see his love and his coming and dying for our sin, that we might be reconciled to you. Father, we pray that you would work now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. I wonder if you've you've ever asked that question. I ask that question, uh, I ask myself that question all the time. Uh, But what are we doing? What are we doing right now? Why are we doing it? Why have we gathered together this morning? Uh, Why do we do what we do when we gather together? You know, different churches do this differently, right? You've probably been to other churches. Every church uh, does uh, a worship service a little bit differently. Does it matter? Uh, is is any one way better than another? Does it make a difference what we do when we get together on Sunday mornings? Well, over the next five weeks, we're we're going to talk about our worship service. We're going to talk about why we do what we do when we do it. Um, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about our liturgy. Um, the word liturgy, it's really not a dirty word. It, uh, it, it really just means what we do in our service and the order in which we do it. That's all it means. Um, every church has a liturgy. Uh, some are more conscious or intentional than others, but every, every church has a liturgy, right? You can't not have a liturgy unless you... Yeah, you can't not have a liturgy. <laughs> uh, now, talking about liturgy may seem kind of odd or... Meaningless, You know, why would we do that? But our goal is that uh, what we do when we gather together would, have, would make more sense, that it would have more meaning, that as we gather together week after week, what we do uh, would be more intelligible to us. So we're going to look at five texts over the next five weeks, focusing on really five different steps in our service. And uh, I'll give you those steps. They're just the next five sermons. The first one's on uh, calling or God's call to worship. Uh, The second one will be on cleansing, God cleansing us of our sin. Uh, Then on uh, commitment, God's commitment to us and ours to him. Communion, meaning our fellowship that we have with God. And then the commission. So we're going to talk about those five things over the next five weeks, calling and cleansing and commitment and communion and commission. I didn't make up all those C's, so don't be impressed. Um, The logic of them will become clear as we go through the sermons over the next five weeks. Uh, Before we, though, before we get into Psalm 100, I want to, I want to, give some introductory remarks, so to speak, on the worship service. You can see that the outline in your bulletin has two parts to it. Sorry it's so complicated, but uh, it's on the back of your bulletin, and the first part of the outline talks about sort of the worship service itself, three things about that, and then there's the second part of the outline, which we'll get into Psalm 100. There There are three things as we think about worship that we want to shape this moment, what we're doing, and uh, the the first, as you can see in your outline, is the Bible. Right? We want the Bible to shape what we do as we gather for worship. Um, this may be kind of obvious, since we're a church. We want the Bible to shape what we do. Uh, but the question becomes: Well, what does that even mean? And uh, there are lots of different answers that we could give to that question. Um, part of it means following the Scriptures' patterns for worship following the scriptural patterns for worship. Of course, that becomes kind of tricky because you may know that the New Testament doesn't really give us a pattern for worship. If you've ever read through the New Testament, uh, you read through the Gospels, you read through the book of Acts, you read through the epistles, and uh, you don't find a single worship service from beginning to end explained, which is kind of frustrating for someone like me because I like things just to be laid out for me, nice and neat and orderly. And it's not there. And that's kind of important because one of the things that means is then there's not one set order for what we do. I'm not going to say over the next five weeks that there's one order. We should always be doing it in this way because you don't find that in the New Testament. Um, There are better or worse orders of service. Maybe you'll see that as we go along. There maybe are more or less biblical orders of service in terms of what the order of the service communicates and, and what you're doing communicates. But uh, Scripture Nowhere commands us to have a particular order of service in the New Testament church, right? So as we talk about worship, as we talk about what we're doing as we gather together, uh, we have to recognize that as you read through the New Testament, it doesn't give us a blow-by-blow plan. And yet, uh, we find dozens of detailed descriptions of worship services in the Old Testament, And, uh, you know, we want the whole Bible to shape what we do as we gather together, not just the New Testament. And uh, the place to start with understanding the Old Testament is actually in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. You may know John, chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. And uh, in verse 21, in their conversation, Jesus says to this woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain uh, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This passage with others in the New Testament seems to be saying that uh, the Old Testament worship, that which was on the temple, uh, the temple Mount in, that which was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, uh, that that's been done away with in the New Testament. And, and that's correct. Uh, we don't have an altar up here. Uh, we didn't bring any goats this morning to slaughter. Thankfully, because I'd be the one doing the slaughtering, and I don't think I'd like that. Um, That's been done away with, but uh, we often, I think, fail to understand what that means. What does that mean, that that Old Testament system is done away with? The, The New Testament says that the temple, with all of its worship, was actually a shadow of things to come. And so, on the one hand, it would be wrong, I think, to say that we model our worship service after the temple system because it would be better to say that the temple system was modeled after the Christian life. I know that's backwards chronologically, but if it's a shadow of something to come, right, it's modeled after that thing. Um, But because of that, if the temple system was a shadow of things to come, Uh, when we look at that, we learn something about the Christian life and about worship. When we look at what happened in the Old Testament, what happened in the temple, we're learning about the Christian life and Christian worship. We're we're gonna see how that works out practically as we look at Psalm 100. Uh, But for now, all I really wanna say is that we want our worship to be biblical. We uh, We want it to be according to the Bible. That doesn't mean that there's one detailed order of service. Uh, it's not, the Bible doesn't tell us first this song and then that prayer and then this scripture reading or something like that but what we do mean is that there are general patterns consistent from Genesis to Revelation uh, seen in the Old Testament temple system and those patterns should inform uh, what we do as we gather for worship. So uh, first we want the whole Bible to shape this moment. Uh, second we want God's covenant to shape this moment. Now um, I'm starting off with a whole bunch of language. I hope that's not confusing. What is a covenant? What does that mean? Um, A simple definition of a covenant, which I think is helpful, is a covenant is a formal, binding, intimate relationship. Think about marriage, right? That's the the, the one covenant that we know of in our culture. Marriage is not casual, right? But it's formal. There, There are legal things that go along with marriage. There's something formal to it. It's not even unbounded. Even in our culture, uh, divorce, which is the breaking of this binding relationship, um, is difficult, right? You have to go to the courts. The courts have to take apart this relationship that has been put together formally. So it's this formal, binding relationship. Marriage is obviously a relationship. It's also an intimate relationship. It's not a contract or a business partnership. That's a covenant, a formal, binding, and yet intimate relationship. Well, what does that all that have to do with worship and what we're doing this morning? Well, we, as God's people, are in a covenant with our Father. We're in a formal, binding, intimate relationship through Jesus. We see in Scripture that there are times when God renews His relationship with His people. He reminds them of the intimacy that they had. And this is sometimes referred to as, as covenant renewal. People gather together to renew, to be renewed in their relationship to their God. Even in marriage, right? There are times when, uh, you know, you're, of course you're married all week long, but there are specific times when you maybe sit on the couch together, or you go out to eat together, or you go for a walk in a park together, and uh, you are renewed in your relationship to your spouse. You remember that you love one another, right? You, you take time to delight in one another. Uh, you talk to one another. Right? There's a back and forth, and. Uh, the same is true with worship, right? Worship is a dialogue. God speaks through his word, and we respond to that again and again. It, you even have in our culture this interesting phenomenon uh, where people renew their wedding vows. Have you ever been to a, a, a service where, where a couple who had been married maybe for a number of years were renewing their wedding vows? Um, they're sort of recommitting to one another, um, that's kind of what's going on as we gather week after week. We're, we're renewing our commitment to Jesus. We're hearing His Word afresh and hearing His commitment to us in the gospel. So, in this dialogue of God speaking and us responding, we, we're recommitting to one another, reaffirming our love, um, being reminded of the Father's love for us, renewing our commitment to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, Sunday morning, it's a time of being renewed in our relationship to our Father. By the back and forth of God speaking, of us responding, of being reminded of God's commitment to us in Christ, and recommitting again to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's this. So we want our worship service to be shaped by the Bible. Um, there's this back and forth relational element with our God. We're renewing our commitment to Him and Him to us. And a third thing we want to shape this moment is the gospel. You know, when we gather together, we gather really to rehearse the gospel. Rehearsal means two things. Uh, On the one hand, to rehearse something is to go over it. We gather to go over the gospel again and again, to get the gospel ingrained in our heads and in our hearts. Um, This is maybe the most important point over the next five weeks, and it's just an introductory point, but... Uh, that, that the worship service is designed to walk us through the gospel each week. If you get nothing else, right, get this. The idea is to be reminded of the gospel week after week, to receive the gospel afresh week after week, to be reoriented to our Father week after week. That's what we're doing, being reminded of what he's done for us in the cross, being reoriented to our Father because of that. Of course, rehearsal means more than just going over something. A uh, Rehearsal is also practice, isn't it? And uh, the whole of the service, the whole of the worship service is actually set up as a kind of practice in how to live in light of the gospel. Uh, weekly, we gather together and we're trained how to listen to God's voice, uh, how to deal with guilt, to confess our sins, uh, to receive forgiveness, to confess what we believe about Jesus, to lay our cares before our Father through prayer to give sacrificially, to commune with Father through the Son, with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. All of these things we do in the worship service, but they're also all things that we do throughout the week, aren't they? As we confess our sins, as we pray to our God, as we hear his word, and so on. And so in one sense, actually, to call this moment a worship service is a bit of a misnomer, actually. We are called to worship God throughout our lives, right? Every moment, we're called to offer ourselves to him. Every day, uh, Romans tells us, we're called to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's worship language. So you don't come to church to worship uh, any more than you go to a hospital to breathe. I and mean, you all seem to be breathing just fine right here in the Y, right? You don't need to go to the hospital to breathe. But if you're struggling to breathe, uh, you might go to the hospital, right, to get your lungs working properly, and uh, so we come, we gather together to get our heart working properly each week, to reorient our hearts to our Father, to learn again the activity of worship so that we can then live it out during the week. So We gather to rehearse the gospel, right, to get it into our hearts, to learn to live it in our lives. All right, all of that's by way of introduction. I know that's like a third of what I'm going to say, but mm-hmm. it's, it's still just the introduction. Um, this week, we're talking about one particular activity in our worship service. Uh, we're talking about the call to worship. We're going to look at that, uh, talk about the call to worship from Psalm 100. Talk about God's gracious invitation. And we're going to see four things in Psalm 100. You can see, again, this outline in your bulletin. We'll see that God invites us that God invites us into his presence, that he invites us uh, in light of who he is and he invites us to reorient our lives around him or I think it um, says in your bulletin, invites us to, to live our lives for him or something to that effect. First, God invites us. Psalm 100 begins with an exhortation. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence. Picks up in verse 4 with more exhortations. Enter his gates, right? Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Verse 1 and 2 and 4 of Psalm 100 are a series of of imperatives, commands, exhortations calling us to do something. In this this morning, we read this psalm, Psalm 100, responsively as our call to worship. And uh, you might be tempted to think, therefore, uh, that we were calling one another to worship. And in a sense, that's true. But one of the reasons we use Scripture as our call to worship is to point out the fact that God is the one who calls us to worship. It's God's Word that called us to worship this morning. His Word calls us. He speaks, and then we respond. We see this throughout Scripture, God calling His people to worship Him. You see it in Isaiah chapter 45, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Or in Isaiah 55, which we read uh, some of this morning, which begins, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Again, God is calling his people to himself. Or God says simply in the book of Amos, Seek me and live. And then we have Jesus, who called out to people to follow him, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Or in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Revelation 22, the very end of the Bible, the Holy Spirit and the church together get in on the act, where we're told that the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. But the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, God is constantly, throughout Scripture, throughout our lives, calling us to worship Him. I wonder, as you think about the Bible, as you think about the Scriptures and this theme of God's calling His people to worship, where is the first call to worship in the Bible? It's a little bit tricky. Kind of hard to say, I guess, um, could be in creation itself, actually. You know, the Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. In a sense, God, through the heavens themselves, through creation itself, is calling us to worship him. Maybe it's when God commanded Adam not to eat from a certain tree. Uh, That also, in a sense, is a kind of call to worship. God is calling Adam to give God his worth, his obedience. God deserves our obedience, and God is calling Adam to, to give just that. Or how about in Genesis 3, the passage we read this morning? After that first sin, after Adam and Eve worshiped themselves, worshiped their own glory, put themselves and their good and their greatness above God, Genesis 3 9 says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, you might wonder, uh, how can that be a call to worship? Um, but it's, it's interesting. In the book of Joshua, uh, there's a man named Achan who had sinned, a, a great sin against God. It brought judgment on Israel. And when Joshua confronts Achan, he says this, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. See, honesty before God is a part of worship. Coming clean, coming to him in confession of our sin is a part of worship. So even when God says to Adam, where are you? Right? It's a call to repentance, and so it's a call to renewed worship. So when God comes to Adam in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? God is calling Adam to worship him, to, to acknowledge God as God. Well, God calls us to worship from the scriptures. One of the most difficult things to do in any relationship, of course, is get started, um, You may know the awkwardness of that, right? Some of us tend to be embarrassed to go up to people we don't know. Uh, We're shy, we're afraid, don't know how to start the conversation. Uh, It's not just people we don't know, though. Um, You know, whenever you've had a fight with someone, an argument, a falling out, disagreement with your spouse, maybe, or a friend, it can be hard to be the person who initiates that reconciliation, right? To take the first step. I mean, maybe you've, I don't know, maybe all of your marriages are perfect, but have you ever sat uh, on the couch next to your spouse, and you know, the couch is only this big or whatever, but you felt like your spouse was a thousand miles away, and you didn't know how to cross that distance, right? You didn't know what to say. One of the most difficult things to do in a relationship is just get started, just say the first word. Well, God calls us to worship. He calls. He invites us, and when he invites us to worship, he's initiating something, right? He's starting, he's saying the first word. He's getting it started. He's saying, come, come to me and worship. It's obvious in the Adam passage that he's initiating, right? God comes to Adam and says, where are you? He breaks the silence, right? God breaks the silence for us. He initiates this exchange, this conversation. Again, he's initiating a relationship with this call to worship, calling us to himself, This is important when we've sinned, right? Because, you know, if you've sinned, if you've fallen into some sin and you know your guilt, we're often afraid of God. And uh, we're fearful of his anger, of his wrath, of his judgment. And uh, that fear is logical, right? God is holy, God is just. It's God's word that calls us out and calls us back to himself. Of course, ultimately, it's Jesus who is the incarnate word, God's word become flesh who opens the way to come back into his presence. And how would we ever stop hiding if we didn't know that God's word had made a way for us to return to him? That because of Jesus removing our sin by the sacrifice of himself, we are now, uh, can now without fear draw near to our heavenly father. Right? God calls us to worship. He initiates this relationship. He opens the way for us to come to him. Whether in the form of the words of our psalm, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Whether in the words of uh, God in Genesis 3, saying to Adam, Adam, where are you? Or whether the incarnate word saying to us, come to me and rest. God calls us to worship and God's call to worship is God initiating a relationship with you. He's calling for a response. God speaks and we respond. That's why in our service uh, we have the call to worship and it's followed by a song and a prayer. Uh, God calls us to worship, we respond in worship, in praise, in adoration. Then we respond with what we call the invocation, um, which the invocation is a prayer and invocation really just means to call on someone. (laughs) That's what it means to invoke God, to call on him. And uh, God calls us to worship, we respond by calling on him to save us to care for us, to come and be with us. We call on the name of the Lord. That's, again, biblical language for worship. It means to seek God's help. And more and more, I think the invocation must be a prayer seeking God's help to respond to his call to worship, right? He calls us to worship, and we call on him to come and enable us to do that very thing. God, come and help us. Come and enable us to worship. Come and direct our hearts to you. So God is calling us. That's what he does in creation. It's what he does in the gospel. It's what he does in our corporate gathering at the beginning of our worship service. God is calling us to worship him, inviting us to something. I want to look at three things about that invitation in Psalm 100. First, God invites us into his presence. That's what he's inviting us to. He's inviting us into his presence. Verse 2 says, Come into his presence with singing. Verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. God called his people to come into his presence. Now, where is God? Yes, this is a trick question. Um, you know, there's a children's catechism. It's a series of questions and answers to teach children the basic truths of Christianity. And there's a children's catechism, and question number 10 is, where is God? And uh, when we were going over that catechism in our home, I don't even remember when it was, years ago, I think, can't remember now, this question always caused great consternation in our household. I'd ask the question, and I'd get three different answers. Where is God? In heaven. In my heart. Uh, Everywhere. And of course, the problem is all three answers are correct. (laughs) Where is God? God is in heaven. Yes, that's true. uh, But that's not the answer that the catechism is looking for. Okay, God's in my heart. Okay, that's true too, but that's not the answer the catechism is looking for. God is everywhere. Yes, that's it. That's the one that the catechism is looking for. All three answers are correct, aren't they? But one of the problems is, for us, is, is we're quick to say everywhere. I think my boys were onto something when they wanted to say in heaven or in my heart. They wanted to locate God. We're quick to say God is everywhere, and that's because it's theologically and philosophically true. But it actually neglects uh, two other emphases of Scripture. God repeatedly called his people to come before him. Read the Bible. God is constantly calling people to come into his presence. And God repeatedly promises to go with them. I will be with you, Moses. I will be with you, Joshua. I will be with you always to the ends of the earth, Jesus says to his disciples. God is constantly saying he's going to be with them. And he's constantly calling us to come into his presence. Now, right now, we're concerned with the first of those. God is, God is, we're concerned with the fact that God repeatedly calls us to come before him. So, Exodus chapter 25, God is giving instructions for the tabernacle, and uh, he begins those instructions with the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was um, like God's portable throne, God's chariot. And uh, God says this about the Ark, And the mercy seat on top. He says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. Right there, God says. That's where I'm going to meet with you. Not somewhere else. Not in the outer courts. Not in your own tent. Not, you know, across the sea. Not in the river. Right, whatever. But right there, at the Ark of the Covenant. That's where I'm going to meet with you, God says. God is everywhere. It's true. It's true. But he promises to meet with his people in a specific place in Exodus 25. And so throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you read through the book of Deuteronomy, God tells Israel to seek the place which God will make for his dwelling. Right? Go f- seek out that place where, which I will make for my dwelling. And then he calls them not to worship him just anywhere, but in that place, in the temple. Right? Only worship me in that place. God says Israel is to eat their tithe at one point as a kind of feast in celebration of Yahweh's provision, but they are not to eat it anywhere. You shall eat the tithe before the Lord your God. So before him, again, God's in a place, right? Before, Eat before me, before the Lord your God, in the place that the Lord your God will choose. So God is very clear throughout the Old Testament that Israel is to meet with him in one place and in one place only, in the temple. Well, you're thinking, okay, fine, that's true in the Old Testament, but we're in the New Testament now. We don't meet with God in the temple anymore. Okay, then where does God meet with his people? Where does God meet with his people today? Remember the temple was a picture of things to come. It was a shadow of something to come. It has been aside because it has been set aside because it has been fulfilled. The shadow is done away with because the reality has come. So what is the reality that the temple was pointing forward to? If we don't meet God in the temple, where do we meet God? Answer, in the true temple. The New Testament doesn't actually do away with the temple concept. Uh, The New Testament does away with the temple built by human hands. So where is the temple according to the New Testament? Where is our temple? Where there are two things, actually, two things in the New Testament that are called a temple. Jesus refers to his own body as the temple because Jesus was God, is God, dwelling in our midst, according to John chapter two. So if we want to take the Old Testament teaching seriously, that we meet with God in one place, where do we meet with God? We meet with God in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. That's where we meet with God. In that place and in that place only. But the New Testament also teaches that the church, the people of God, are the temple. Right? So, Ephesians 2, we read it earlier, speaking to Gentiles. Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, notice all this building language, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God met with his people in the Old Testament in the temple. That's where he caused his name to dwell. That's where his people came before him in the temple God meets with his people in the New Testament in the temple. A temple not made with hands, but in his church among his people. Church, by the way, doesn't refer to a building. The word church refers to people, refers to a gathering of people. In fact, the word, the Greek word for church can mean a mob, right? Uh, So this mob right here is what it's talking about. God meets with his people in the church. Now, you might object that God dwells in each one of us individually, right, not just as a group, and that's true enough, but there are two things to note even about that. All of those passages, all those great passages which talk about your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, they're all plural, the, the you and the your, right? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a plural your, right, like y'all, right? The Bible doesn't translate it like that, but it's y'all. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Y'all's bodies. It's the possessive, personal possessive of y'all, Y'all's, Which is not to say that you're not individually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand. But the emphasis throughout the scriptures is almost always on the church corporately, not Christians individually, being indwelt by the Spirit. And so, uh, second, you have Jesus say things like this. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Paul, similarly, in 1 Corinthians 5, when the, says that when the church is assembled together, the power of the Lord Jesus is with them. Something unique happens when we gather together as God's people. I don't fully understand it, but... Somehow, uh, God is present with his people just as he was present with his people in the temple as he met with them above the ark, so God is present with us when we gather in his name. So he meets with us in the church. As the Israelites came before God when they came to the temple, so we come before God when we assemble as his people. Even this, of course, is just a, a foretaste of the day when we will be gathered around His throne in in the new creation, when there will be no more temple, no more tabernacle, because God and the Lamb will be the temple, the book of Revelation tells us. And of course, if you really want to blow your mind, you can read Colossians 3 and Hebrews 12 and think about the fact that both of them seem to teach that when we gather here on earth, we're actually gathering around His throne in heaven. There's something mysterious going on. That this gathering is somehow a part of that great gathering going on right now. So the call to worship is truly an invitation into God's presence. Psalm 100 says, Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It's calling us to come into God's presence. Calling us to gather before him. So God invites us. Uh, God invites us into his presence. And God invites us in light of who he is. Uh, look at verses 3 and 5. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Those verses give us the reason we're to come to him. Why should we come and worship? Well, the Lord is God. We are not. Right? He is worthy, right? He deserves our applause. He deserves our praise. He deserves our obedience. It's He who made us, We are His, which uh, probably was talking not so much about creation, that's true. right God made each one of us. He fashioned us, He created humanity, He made us. He knit us together in our mother's womb, the scriptures say. But that's probably not what that's talking about. It's probably talking about God creating Israel choosing them in Abraham, bringing them out of Egypt, forming them into a nation. And then it's what Peter says then later about the church, where he echoes God's words about Israel in the Old Testament. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. God has formed us into his people. He has shaped us into his people. He took each one of us from our lives of sin and rebellion and gathered us to himself that we might belong to him, that he might be our God and we might be his people. The way he did that, of course, was by sending his son Jesus, by rejecting him on the cross as our substitute and then accepting him in the resurrection that he might accept us in Jesus. So the psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, the psalmist says, which is to say not only did God save us in Jesus and bring us to himself, but he now continues to care for us. The God of the universe watches over us as his sheep. He provides for us. He protects us. Serve the Lord with gladness. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations God's goodness is unceasing, the psalmist says. His love endures. He's not going to give up on you. His faithfulness is to all generations. Even though we often fall into sin and unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to His promises no matter what. Come into His presence with singing. He's worthy of our worship. God invites us. He invites us to come into His presence. He invites us in light of who He is. But we haven't Yet talked about what he invites us to come and do. So if we talk about where, he invites us to him. But what? What are we to do? He calls us into his presence. He calls us in light of who he is. But what are we to do? God invites us to live for him. We see that in at least three ways in our passage. Uh, God invites us to find our joy in him. God invites us to serve him. And God invites us to acknowledge him. So first, God invites us to find our joy in him. The call to worship is really a call to find our joy in God. It's that on the very surface. Look at verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. God is calling us to find our joy, to delight in Him. But the call to find our joy in God is really incredibly subversive. It's a a challenge to everything that the world says is going to make you happy. God is saying, no, no, don't make a joyful noise over there to that. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Make a joyful noise before me. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. He is the source of supreme joy. And so he's saying, come and find that joy. Come to me and find your joy. The call to worship is it's a call to break with the love of the world to stop worshiping our work, to stop worshiping our families, to stop worshiping our sex life, and start worshiping the only one who can bring us deep and abiding joy and gladness. God wants us to reorient our hearts toward Him. And this takes repentance and faith, right? To see and own and acknowledge the ways that we have loved inferior things more than God, and to believe that He truly is the source of of all joy, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore as the scriptures say there are. So we must turn away from the world and turn to our God. We must repent and believe so that we find our joy in him. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. That's what God calls us to. God invites us to find our joy in him. He also calls us to serve him. Notice verse two, serve the Lord with gladness. Now we we tend to look down on, on service, It sounds like a bad thing to serve someone else. Sounds demeaning maybe in our ears, but notice God calls us to serve him with gladness, right? Our service to God is to be a part of the source of our joy, that our lives are about something more than ourselves, that our lives are in service to the the God of heaven and earth, that our work, that our vocation, that our callings are, are not to be about making it rich or climbing the corporate ladder or making a name for ourselves, but that our work itself is in service to the king of heaven, That we're to use the gifts and the talents that He has given to work in the world in obedience to Him in a way that brings glory to His name. That's our joy. That whatever we do, we're serving our God. God calls us to find our joy in Him. He calls us to serve Him. And of course, finally, He calls us to, He invites us to acknowledge Him. Now, that's maybe obvious from what we've just said, right? To find our joy in the Lord is to acknowledge that He is the source of supreme joy. To serve the Lord is to acknowledge that He is the one in charge. He is the King. I am His servant, right? But but there's more. Verse four talks about thanksgiving and giving thanks. And uh, the Book of Romans, chapter one, says that our great sin is to refuse to honor God as God, or give thanks to Him as we ought. To give thanks is to humble ourselves before God. To acknowledge that he is God, he is the king, he is the source of all good things, he is the source of our good, he's the source of our life, he's the source of our joy. To give thanks to God is to recognize him, That, that God owes us nothing, we deserve nothing, we can lay claim to nothing, and yet we give thanks because we recognize that everything we have is a gracious and undeserved gift from him. So we give thanks to him, we acknowledge him. To give thanks in one sense is the ultimate form of worship because it acknowledges God for who he is and for what he's done. I don't know about you, but I am often ungrateful. I take life for granted. I think I'm owed something. I get grumpy when I don't get what I think I deserve. I need to hear God's call to worship. I need to come into his presence. I need my heart reoriented to him. I need to be humbled by His greatness. I need to marvel at His grace, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. I need my heart moved by the Spirit to thanksgiving. May it be so with me and may it be so with you as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that we would hear Your voice, that we would hear Your call to come to worship You, To bow down to you, to rejoice in you, to acknowledge you, to see you for who you are, to find our joy in your love and in your mercy and in your grace, to rejoice in that. Father, we pray that our lives would be oriented around you. Everything we do would be in light of who you are. Father, let us hear your call to come and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.